find it very comfortable. So if you find your mask really uncomfortable, go to a scrub store, a uniform store, uh, and buy one of these masks. They're really awesome. Uh, that's just my suggestion. Uh, not, not the Lord, but me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Ephesians. As we continue our journey in Ephesians, we will be in chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. I don't know how many of you have heard the name David Platt before, but it's a name that you should become familiar with. Um, he once served as the president of the IMB, and he's now a pastor of an SBC church. Uh, but uh, he's, he's pretty, fam- pretty well known in, in Southern Baptist world, but his books are especially challenging, and there's one book that I've been working through, uh, and he, he details a mission trip that he took to the Himalayas. Uh, it's just one of these places that's physically in- incredibly difficult to reach and spiritually difficult to reach, and he, he goes on this mission trip, and he retells his journey there, and he, he wants to, to do that and challenge Christians in America to consider uh, what it means to truly follow Christ. And so he tells uh, about this story. He, he meets in this building with, uh, in a circle of Christians, and they're, they're Christian leaders, they're pastors. And he hears the story uh, from this Christian couple from Korea, uh, and their names are um, So Yoon and Jin. So Yoon and Jin. It's this couple they came from Korea, and they had done work in these Himalayan villages for about 10 years. They, they uprooted their lives to work among these people and share the gospel with them. And so they had been there for about 10 years when... Uh, these villagers, these local villagers, became convinced that the local gods were angry at this new foreign god of Christianity. So this militia of men with guns and torches came and knocked on their door in the middle of the night and, and demanded that they leave. And so this couple, they leave their house, and as they're leaving, this militia burns down their house. And so they, they leave this country, uh, and but they're, they're convinced that's where God wants them to go. So they wait, right? They wait for an opportunity to go back. And so David, he, as he's sitting in this circle, he's hearing the story from not only them, but from these other Christians and their, their story. And he, this older man starts to talk. Uh, and this man, his name is Baishaw. And the, the man that's, this Baishaw, this man that starts speaking, is the same man who knocked on the door to demand so Yun and Jin leave, and he's the same one. He pointed a gun in his face and told him to leave, and he's the one who set the house on fire. And so David's like, and he's sitting in this circle. What well, turns out uh, a natural disaster had hit the country, and so not only did So Yun and Jin come, Jin come back, but other Christians came to help rebuild this community, and it was through Christians doing that that Baishal heard the gospel, and he, became, and he became a believer in Christ, and so this guy who once demanded this couple leave because of Christ is now an entirely different man because of Christ. Instead of being the one to threaten Christians with a gun, he is now the one to be threatened with a gun. And, and I, I thought this story was incredible, and I, I tell it to you today not just to highlight like the awesome work that God is doing in people's lives across the world, but also to highlight that Christianity looks entirely different from the world around it. There is a discernible difference in those who truly walk with Christ. Even among a culture 
right? Even in a culture where the majority of people might claim to be Christians, the people who truly follow Christ look different. That's because true Christians have an entirely new nature. An entirely new nature. A Christian is not someone who was once bad but is now good, but is someone who is completely new. It's like you you were once a fish, but now you're a bird. A, A new creature altogether. If you are in Christ, you are entirely new. Your thoughts and your wants and your desires and your hopes and your deepest loves change. And it's because of this new nature that we live different. And the thing about this nature, though, is it's an already not yet. Like, we already have a new nature, but we have not completely left our old one behind yet. We walk by our new nature, but the old one is close on our heels while we still walk this earth. Even though we're birds, we still have to act Watch out for acting like fish. And so in this passage, Paul calls us to walk according to this new nature. Walk according to your new nature. And and so we have to watch how we walk. It's a call to watch. So in this passage, what I'd like for us to do is to hear the ways in which Paul calls us to watch. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle he defined three key aspects of persuasion. What it, what it takes to persuade somebody or, or when you're public speaking, what three elements really gives uh, credibility to someone. And so uh, there's three, these three elements are ethos, logos, and pathos. So 
the first one, ethos, is, is like your character or your credibility. So if the person speaking to you or trying to convince you, persuade you, displays like bad character or doesn't have any char- credibility, you're not likely to be convinced by them, right? You're going to be convinced some, some, by someone who has good character, who is upstanding. The second is logos. Logos, right? L-O-G, logic, has to do with their argument, what they say, how they present it, how they, the words they use to try to persuade you. So does it sound good? Does it make sense? Is it reasonable? Uh, and then there's pathos. Pathos is the emotional element of, of persuasion. And it's arguably the strongest. So often how we feel about something overshadows the character of someone or even the logic of what they're saying. So a a sleazy car salesman still might be able to convince us to buy a sports car because we think the sports car is cool. Craigslist, right? I I want that on Craigslist no matter how sleazy the person is that's selling it to me. And Craigslist is sleazy. Uh, But that's not my point. My first point is this. We have to watch how we're influenced. Watch how you're influenced. Paul starts this passage by saying, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must not walk, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. But he's, it's funny that he's telling this to a bunch of Gentiles. <laughs> like even in chapter 3, he addressed them as Gentiles. What does he say in, in chapter 3? He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner on Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So it's funny because he's like, hey, you Gentiles don't act like Gentiles. But the reason that he has to say this, that he has to tell Gentiles not to act like Gentiles, is because sometimes living like that looks attractive. It's the the pathos of it. It's it's how we feel about it. It, it. It feels exciting. It looks good. It's something that we want. In fact, Psalm 73 says this much when Asaph, this whole psalm is about when he writes, My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph envied the wicked because they're so carefree and they look happy. I mean, as a Christian, when you're under conviction of sin, you're not happy. And this is the danger that Paul is warning them of. And so Paul, what he has to do is expose this lifestyle for what it is. Listen to how he describes it. Verse 17, In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have just given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. One reason I, I love the book of Proverbs, is it's definitely one of my favorite books in the Bible, is because Solomon is trying to warn his son about the seductiveness of sin. So, so what Solomon does is he describes sin and folly as a woman. Sin and folly are, is a woman. She's attractive. But, but he also, what he wants to do is, is show his son wisdom. And, and wisdom is this woman that, that, that he wants his son to be attracted by, his, her beauty and her worth. And so what he has to do is he has to contrast the two women and expose the woman folly for all of her bitterness. 
And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. It might look attractive, it might look exciting, it might feel good, but in the end, the underbelly is a facade of just this nasty, bitterness, ugly underbelly. And so Paul's point here is not to say, look, look at how terrible those Gentiles are. As if Christians are to look down on lost people. No, the point is to say, this is also who you once were, so be careful not to live like that again. Because this is what it truly is. And the reason is, because the more you let yourself be influenced by it, the more you become like it. If you let yourself be influenced by this lifestyle, you too will become futile in your thinking. You too will become darkened. You too will become hardened. And possibly you may become alienated from God. So watch watch how you are influenced, Christian. And I don't mean you just have to sit at home and watch Christian movies or listen to Christian music all day. But if and when you do listen to secular music or watch secular TV shows, use discernment. I mean, you can be an unholy guy and watch Hallmark movies all day long or Christian movies all day long and still be unsaved. So it's not about what you watch. It's it's how you watch it. Use discernment. Christians are not... Passive consumers, we're always to be thinking and asking and considering what we do and why we do it and how it's affecting us. But generally speaking, in the evangelical world, I think we're pretty, uh, let's say this carefully, but I feel like we're all pretty okay with pointing out, like, that's sin, right? Like, that shouldn't say that, I shouldn't do that, I, I know it. Like, we're kind of good at that, but what we're not good at is being aware of how we're influenced by cultural Christianity. Our culture for a long time has accepted the norms and values of Christianity and that's been great but the result is that you have a lot of people who claim they're Christians but they don't actually follow Christ. And so what cultural Christianity does is is lulls us into thinking that that we we can have all of our earthly comforts and, and heaven too. We can have it all. The danger is that it props up all the values and morals of Christianity, but it doesn't actually follow Christ, and it can deceive us into doing the same thing. So we must be aware. We have to be incredibly diligent and use the utmost discernment and watch how we're influenced by all of these worldly factors. So Christian, watch how you're influenced. Watch what pulls your heart away from Christ. So that's, that's one reason, though, why Paul tells the Gentiles not to live like this is because of the influence that it has. But the other side is this. These Gentile Ephesians aren't primarily Gentiles anymore. They have a new identity. Their primary citizenship has changed. What did Paul say in Ephesians 2? You were once separated from citizenship in Israel, but now you are fellow citizens with God's people. 
So their citizenship has changed. They have a new nature. We as Christians have a new nature. And so our primary citizenship is not as Gentiles. Our primary citizenship is not as Americans. We have a new citizenship. So this leads to our second point. Watch the war inside you. Watch the war inside you. Paul writes this in verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ. This is really an embarrassing and despicable thought for me to confess to you. But when I was a teenager, I thought, hey, you know what? I want to understand sin better. And I want to relate to sinners better. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin to get to know sin more and sinners better. Yeah, embarrassing and despicable. But here's the thing. Not only did I not learn anything about Christ, but I didn't even learn anything about sin. Right? I I knew exactly what would happen, and it just led to despair and depression and hopelessness and sorrow. I didn't learn anything. And so Paul is saying, you didn't learn Christ that way, and that's not how you're going to learn Him. In other words, there's no neutral zone here. You're either influenced and you're darkened or you're going to learn Christ. There's a war that's going on inside your soul. Then Paul pauses here and he he says this. He he says, you didn't, that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him. What he's saying is, you can't walk according to this new nature if you don't have it. You can't walk according to this new nature if you don't have this new nature. You can't learn Christ if you don't already know Christ. And, and what's so amazing about this little phrase here that he says, that's not the way you learn Christ, is like that phrase, learn Christ, is nowhere else in the Bible. And there's no documentation of it in, in pre-biblical Greek documents this little phrase learn christ and that's because when he uses this phrase it's to indicate that christianity is deeply personal relational tony marita right he wrote christianity is not about moral rule keeping religious attendance having warm feelings at a religious event Merely believing in God, doing good things, or knowing facts about Christ. It is about knowing Christ. It's about knowing a person. So ask yourself, is Christ real to you? Do you have an actual relationship with Him? Do you know what it means to commune with the triune God? Don't just say you love God. Do you really? If not, you cannot live this way. You can't walk until you're new. So, What's this war that Paul talks about? He writes about it in verse 21. Assuming that you, were heard, that you have heard about him, we're taught him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This war is to put off the old self and to put on the new. This is the already, not yet. We already have a new nature, but we must continually put off, put to death the old self and put on the new self. That's the war. And so notice what Paul says, though. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. In verse 17, the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. But in Christ, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Putting on the new self begins with the life of your mind. It begins, it begins with your thoughts, what you dwell on. And you can't love somebody if you never think about them. Paul writes in Colossians 3, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Renew your minds. Put on your old self by renewing your thoughts, your minds. Charles Spurgeon said, good men are nonetheless full of thought because they are full of faith. Believing is not the death of thinking, it is the sanctification of it. Christian, there is a war inside you. Your old nature, your old self is at war with your new self, your new nature. And it begins in your mind what has your attention. So let your mind be so saturated in the word of God and in prayer that all of your thoughts begin to be filtered through the lens of Christ. Take every thought captive so that it bows to the Lordship of Christ. Watch the war inside you. I'm not the kind of person that's good at comebacks. So usually, I'm the kind of person that thinks of a really good comeback 15 minutes after the opportunity has passed. So, so later on in the day, hey, if I see that guy again, I'll get him this time. It never happens. I never get the chance. Uh, so when it comes to sports, I don't ever rub it in. Uh, because what I like to do is I just let, like, my team, if they win, I like to let the win speak for itself, you know. I let that, that outcome speak for ourselves. And so in our new nature, it's the, the outcome that we want. So, for our last point, watch the outcome. Putting off the old self and, and putting on the new has a discernible outcome. There's like, there shouldn't be like a question. There's a discernible outcome. Paul, he moves in this, the rest of this passage, he starts with a negative, don't do this, but moves to the positive, do this. So, he writes in verse 25, therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Truth is really hard to come by these days. 
Um, but when I think about this passage, I think about telling truth. Okay, I'm to speak the truth to another person. But it, it's me thinking, being truthful in, I'm going to tell them a truth that I think that they need to hear. And that's true. We should always speak truth to one another, especially truth that the other person may not want to hear. But we should also be willing to speak the truth to one another when that truth makes us look bad. So it means not blaming somebody else. It means admitting to a wrong or to an offense. Coming clean. Confessing sin. We often think of wielding the truth because someone else needs to hear it, but we need to think more often of wielding the truth because we need to hear it. Put away falsehood. Paul continues, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, we've got to turn this on ourselves because in the age of social media, I find myself becoming angry, 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 angry. In fact, I, I take many breaks from social media because I just find myself getting angry all the time. And it's just not good for my soul. It's not good for my mind. But one thing that I do is I often excuse my anger as righteous indignation, but when someone else is angry, it's sinful. Or they're just losing their temper. Ah, my, mine, mine is righteous, theirs is not. But this passage isn't commending anger, it's restricting anger. It's restricting it. Because the point is, to be angry and not to sin in your anger is rare. Is rare. James says this, Be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, do you feel angry? James says to you, be slow to anger. Do you feel righteously angry? Be slow to anger. Are you, without a doubt, righteously angry? James says still, be slow to anger. It says, don't, don't let the sun go down. This is a great passage because I feel like we're like stuck in this thing where it's like, oh no, if the sun sets while well, I'm angry, I've sinned. Oh, what am I to do? That's not really the point. It, it means don't brood in your anger. Don't, don't let your anger take hold of you. Don't nurse your anger, but deal with your anger promptly. Don't wait longer than is necessary. Deal with it. Again, I hope that you see that putting on the new truth has everything to do with how we treat others, how we view others, how we interact with others. So Paul continues in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In marriage, one of the hardest things to do is figure out how you're going to do house chores. Uh, and it's, it's, it's honestly, I, I, we celebrated six years yesterday, but honestly I feel like this is going to be a lifelong struggle uh, because the thing is, like some, some chores I'm happy to take on, some chores she's happy to take on, but like one that we like are continually, uh, I say struggling with, it's not really a struggle, but that we hate is doing laundry. Like doing laundry is such a drudgery. Like at least with the vacuum cleaner, like I'm vacuuming up a mess, you know, and I'm, take, or I'm taking out the trash or whatever, but laundry is so boring. And so I say it's not a struggle because when I don't do it, the burden falls on Mallory. 
So when someone doesn't work, the burden naturally falls on someone else. And so the community of believers is to be a working community. And the ultimate reason for working falls not just on contributing, but sharing. What what does Paul say? Let him work, doing honest work with his own hands. Verse 28, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul says, become a have so that you can give to the have-nots. Paul goes on, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, we see that the Christian life is not about avoiding this sin or avoiding that sin or not saying this word or not saying this word. It's about building other people up. And so some words, by their nature or by their design, are meant to tear down. But it's not just specific words that we have in mind. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Okay, like, okay, get it, don't cuss. That's not exactly what Paul has in mind. The most holy words we use can be simple if they are used in gossip or slander, or rage, or in any other way that might tear people down. We can know truth and speak it to one another, but if it's done in an unloving way, we have betrayed the truth and it's good for nothing. Building, using language that builds other people up. means we are intentional about what we say and what we don't say. Paul goes on, he finishes, let's just look at verse 30, and Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a force. Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved. And, And yes, any sin grieves him. Any sin grieves him. But what Paul has in mind right here is that the Spirit is being grieved by how the community of believers treats one another. Right? The Spirit is, what does he say in, in, chapter, in chapter 4, verse 3? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what especially grieves the Spirit is when a believer sins against or tears down a fellow believer, and especially when those members are part of the same local body. That is especially grievous to the Spirit. Paul finishes this passage, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. There's just a couple of things I want to point out here. First, First is that slander is slander, no matter who you're talking about, no matter if the other person deserves slander. I see. A, let me tell you, computers and the internet have been, are great. I, I know I, I rant against this a lot, but this is a large part of my world, and it's something that I want you to be aware of too. It's easy, a lot easier to be brave and to say things over a keyboard or a, a, a phone pad or screen than you would in person. 
And I see a lot of people who say things online that they would never say in person. They're a different person online. And so when I see slander, I see it against like our political opponents. Right? But slander is slander no matter who it's against. A Christian should not participate in slander, but only in what is actually truthful and wholesome. But I also, also want to dwell on forgiveness. Because this passage is really easy to think about as an idea. Like, forgiveness is a really cushy, nice, soft word. Yes, forgiveness. But when Paul says, forgive one another, forgiveness assumes that there's an offense that needs to be forgiven. There's a hurt that needs to be forgiven. Forgiveness assumes that members of the body are going to hurt you. Forgiveness assumes that you're going to be offended, insulted. And it does not matter if they ask you for forgiveness. You forgive them before they ever come to you for forgiveness. And more than that, forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. When we forgive someone, we don't give them what they deserve. No, they don't forget, deserve your forgiveness, but that's what grace is about. When we forgive someone, we absorb their offense for ourselves. Timothy Keller was really, I thought, insightful when he wrote this. He said, grace and forgiveness while free to the recipient, are always costly for the giver. When you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. So, forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is costly and scandalous. And this kind of forgiveness is only possible because in Christ, God forgave you. So when someone offends you, someone insults you, someone hurts you, take that offense, multiply it exponentially, and that's exactly how God feels about our sin that we commit daily, multiple times a day. And when we grasp that in Christ God has forgiven us this much, forgiveness is not only toward others, it's not only possible, but plentiful. Brother, sister, I have not grieved you nearly as much as I've grieved God. You have not grieved me as much as I have grieved God. And we're both already forgiven in Christ. That's what makes forgiveness possible. As God in Christ forgave you. Don't mix this up in your head. You're not doing this to get your new nature. You're doing this because you already have a new nature if you are in Christ. Christian, the words that you need to hear are, it is finished for you. It is finished for you. The slander that you've already committed against another believer or someone else, it's finished for you. The anger and the rage that that you have indulged in in your flesh has been forgiven already. The words, the corrupting talk that you speak, it's finished for you. It is finished for you, Christian. 
It is finished. The, the wrath of God, every ounce of the wrath of God that's due to your sin, how you treat other people, how you treat other Christians, has been fully absorbed by Christ. And so there is, not, there is now not one ounce of sin that you bear in Christ. Not one ounce. It is finished for you, Christian. You have a new nature. Now go and live freely in this nature. These commands are not burdens if you have this new nature. They're freeing. But if you are not in Christ, it is not finished for you. If you are not in Christ, you still bear the wrath of God. God provides a sacrifice for you. You must repent and believe. Repent and believe in Christ and the wrath of God will be poured out on Christ on your behalf and you will have a new nature. But don't try to do this until this new nature is yours in Christ. We have a new nature in Christ. This is our life in the new nature. It's not avoiding certain sins, not just trying to avoid sins, but, but actively pursuing obedience, actively building up the body of believers, this body of believers, the person who is sitting in the row in front of you, behind you. This is the person that God has called you to, to love and to build up. You are united in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you share the same Spirit. Live in that new nature together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are building up Your church. Yes, You're building up Your global church. Yes, You're building up the universal church, but Lord, You're building up this body, Liberty Baptist Church, an old church, a small church, but the Lord of the universe, the cosmos, wants to advance His kingdom by building us up. And that's stunning. We don't need lights. We don't need grandeur we don't need all this expensive stuff we just need to do the everyday work of building one another up pointing each other to Christ it's not glamorous it's not worth a new cycle but it is precious in your sight oh lord jesus Grant us faith in our inner being by your Holy Spirit. That together with one another, helping one another to see this more and more, we may be able to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is your love for us. That we would be lost, lost in your love, Lord. And free to lay down our lives for the sake of one another. And it's in your name, your living name that we pray. Amen.